the Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome to Just Love. This is our weekly conversation about the church and the world. We say just love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. And quite frankly, when we speak about the big issues on just love, in other words, the issues that we're debating, we're living with, we're dealing with in the broader society, we kind of say that the reason we do it is because we want to reflect upon those big issues through the prism of our Catholic values, our Catholic beliefs, and to see how those Catholic values and beliefs cause us to form an opinion as to how we impact what's going on in the world in a way to make the world that we live in more just and more compassionate. And Tom, you know, maybe I'm going to go on a little bit about this, but I do think it's important to say that at the core, we believe that every human person is made in God's image and likeness. And therefore, what is part of being human is the rights and the responsibilities that everybody has, and rights need to be ensured to the extent that they can. I think probably at this kind of advanced stage of my life, <laughs> I am waiting for the kingdom of God when Jesus comes again, and then it's going to be all perfect. Mm-hmm. And I'm a little bit patient with the fact that um, we need to do our part to make advances, to make the world more just and more compassionate, but we're not going to get it done. Mm -hmm. And there will continue to be much injustice, much lack of compassion, many rights abuses until Jesus comes again in the world in his world. Now, I want to say two things that are very, very clear is one, we have to do whatever we can to advance those. And, you know, for those of us who maybe have more of our rights respected, whether it be because of race or age or gender, whatever, we can't be uh, complacent and say, well, you know, it's never going to be perfect, etc. No, we have to maintain a little bit of an outrage of the injustices of the world and to work hard to, to do that. And yet at the same time, I think we also, and I think this is what we may bring after a number of years of experience, is you can't just make dreaming of a perfect world, the reason for paralysis to say, well, this isn't good enough. This isn't going to help everybody. This isn't going to do this. And so, no, we're opposed to it because we want everything to be perfect. Well, yeah, I may want everything to be perfect. And if I wanted everything to be perfect, the first place I'd have to get away with, do away with somebody is me. (laughs) because I'm so imperfect and I don't want to be done away with. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, so I kind of live with my own imperfections, and therefore, while I may get a little uneasy, but I got to realize that the world around me is imperfect, Mm -hmm. other people are imperfect, and we're moving towards perfection. And you know that part, Tom, of the gospel where um, it says, you must be as perfect as your heavenly father is perfect? Uh You know, whenever I hear that, (laughs) I kind of, in my own mind, say, um, you must strive to be as perfect. Because <laughs> if I have to be as perfect, I ain't ever getting there, not in this world. This and so 
But <laughs> that doesn't mean, and again, it really is a balance because sometimes you hear people say, hey, nothing can change. It's always going to be this way. And, you know, that's where we're at. And so we can't do anything. No, nah, that's the wrong answer. We can do things. And that's one, one of the reasons we bring up all of these issues that are here because the world is um, a place of imperfection, a world in which there is evil. And the reality is that when those imperfections play themselves out, when the problems show themselves, it is oftentimes those who are most vulnerable, those who are poorest, who bear the brunt of those. And as we know, those are not equally distributed across the world. Let's take one that's, you know, so apparent. Just look at the United States. We are blessed. We are blessed with an abundance of resources, an abundance of wealth that other parts of the world don't have. And so, you know, if you're born in the United States, there are certain things that we take for granted. There are certain things that, quote unquote, come with the territory of being born in the United States. We didn't have much to do with it. We were born here. And so we have certain things that are advantages. You know, I know in the current world, we to use the term privilege and sometimes the word white privilege. And that's kind of a little controversial. So I'm not going to use that term. But I'm simply going to say is we all recognize that if you're born in a particular place, you have opportunities and resources that people in other places don't have. And you're born into that not because you did anything, but that's where you were born. That's where your your parents are. And so we recognize the fact that that's the reality. And, and we got to try to deal with it in a way that everybody has rights respected. They fulfill responsibilities. They have opportunities to live their lives in dignity. So Tom, I I went on a little bit too long. I'm sorry. I for our listeners, I just got on my no road problem, here. And I, I, I I went on. Tom, how are you doing this week? Tom, I'm how doing good, Monsieur. Yeah. Have, yeah. Now again, one of the things I I have discovered, and I think we may have mentioned it a little bit on the show last week, but um, Lunar New Year. So yes, Lunar New Year means to all of our listeners out there. That when you hear this show, even though you may say, well, wait a minute, New Year's Eve was a long time ago, weeks ago. Yeah, but we're still in the midst of Lunar New Year. We're still in the midst of that. And you know what I learned, Tom, that Lunar Hmm. New Year is, or there's a celebration of it, is not just one day or one night. It goes for 15 days. Oh, okay. I didn't know about that one. Wow, that's cool. And I think (laughs) this year it began... December 20, uh, January, January 22nd. Yep. No, mm-hmm. so, you know, it goes, I guess, into February. So, you know, still, you can wish everybody new, happy new year. They <laughs> say, no, 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 you're late. You said, no, happy mm-hmm. new year. And, and if people say, well, yeah, but that's like really kind of, you know, that's a th- fringe thing. Well, wait a minute. If it's such a fringe thing, how many people are in China? Exactly. So, I'm willing to, I haven't added this up, but I'm willing to bet that probably almost as many, if not more people in the world celebrate Lunar New Year mm-hmm. than they do regular New Year. I mean, if you if you got China in one bucket, you already get a leap 
on kind of exactly. race and population. <laughs> um, but Tom, here's a trivia question. Okay. Trivia question. Not every country in Asia celebrates Lunar New Year. Okay. What is one of the more prominent countries in Asia and East Asia we're talking about that oh. does not celebrate um, Lunar New Year? So I'm not talking about South Asia, okay. India, Pakistan, but like, you know, over near Japan, Vietnam, China, those those places, uh, Thailand, Vietnam. What what prominent country doesn't celebrate Lunar New Year? I'm going to say the Philippines. No. Okay. Okay. Well, again, I'm not sure, but it wasn't the one I was thinking of. Okay. Japan. Really? Oh, that's interesting. And wow. Interesting. Okay. I don't know why, but I was speaking to somebody last week and we were talking about it. And he, uh, where is he from? Oh, he's from Korea. Okay. We were talking about it, and he said, no, the Japanese don't celebrate Lunar New Year. Anyway, Tom, <laughs> enough distraction. We have great guests that you've lined up. And so let's go to our first guest. Our first guest is a professor from the University of California, uh, Davis, Professor Marianne Page. She is a professor of economics and a director of the Center for Poverty Research. Uh, professor Paige, thank you so much for being with us. I'm happy to be here. Great. I am delighted. So, hey, listen, before we get into um, the the important topic that you've graciously agreed to talk with our listeners about, give them a little sense of how would you wind up uh, as a professor of economics at the University of California in Davis? How you How'd you get there? You know, I don't actually have a very interesting story, <laughs> but um, I, I'm very much a child of privilege. Um, and I, but I did grow up going uh, to uh, grow up in the Catholic Church. Um, I, uh, after a painful decision, I moved into the Episcopal Church. But um, in both both churches, I just was I get, got a, a large amount of. Um, that's the right way to say this. I I heard the message loud and clear about caring about vulnerable individuals and that message. As well, I had um, strong math skills and a father who was an economics professor. So academia was always something that was kind of very comfortable career path for me. Professor Page, did you yeah. did you do that growing up in California? No, I grew up in Vancouver, actually. Oh. Um, but anyway, I went, so I went to college and I kind of kept taking math classes, but didn't want to major in math. And then I took my sort of trying to figure out what I did want to do. I took an economics class and I was very good at that because of my math skills. Then I took a labor economics class where, uh, the professor who was teaching that class actually, uh, at the, at the time, the, uh, the sort of hot book on the market was something called Losing Ground, which was a, a book by Charles Murray. Uh, it was in the 80s. It informed the Reagan administration's views of um, uh, views about policies to combat poverty. Um, and we went through that book and I read the book and I was completely uh, sort of um, taken in by the book. And then the professor started to walk us through all the 
the statistics that had been misused in the book to try to make a very strong, particularly strong political point. And I was really struck by how one could affect policies that affect vulnerable families, um, either in good ways or bad ways, by using and misusing statistics. And that kind of got me, got me moving in this direction of here I had these math skills, I wanted to apply these math skills in a meaningful way. But, um, and I could see how easy it was for people to be swayed by the misuse of, uh, the blatant misuse of those statistics. And so that's kind of the, a, a short version of how I got to be where I am. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us. And um, what do they say? There are lies, there are great lies, and then there are statistics. I probably have misquoted that a little bit, but I think that's the point they make, isn't it? Yeah. And I will say the nice thing about being an academic is that although I care deeply about policy and affecting policy, I'm not, I'm, I'm not driven by politics. I mean, I have my views about politics, but they're not, um, I am, I have the freedom to focus on what I think is the truth as opposed to trying to make a, a political statement or be swayed by other folks. So that's you know, one of the real pleasures of this job. Right. And, you know, I'm going to come back at the end because I want to ask you a question because that's intriguing to me. But I'm uh, the topic that I really kind of want your expertise to be shared with our listeners on this is there are sometimes things going on around us that everybody's impacted by. Mm-hmm. And but sometimes we don't realize that it has a different effect or even a, a disproportionate effect on other people. And so one of the things that's going on at the moment is um, uh, inflation, okay? In our, in our world, a lot of inflation. inflation. And I mean, a, a jargon phrase that I've heard, which I'd like you to kind of share with our listeners, I, I've heard the phrase said, well, that inflation is the cruelest tax. And you want to expound what what did that jargon phrase mean and you know tied into your work on how it may impact the poor yeah well i haven't actually heard that phrase before although i can imagine that's a a great that's a great way of capturing things you know unlike taxes nobody can escape uh inflation and and what i mean by that is not that no, i'm not talking about fraud i'm talking about the fact that if you're not working you are not being taxed, right? So, so I'm not, and again, I'm not trying to suggest that people don't work to avoid taxes, but there are people who don't pay taxes in the United States. Everyone is affected by inflation. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I don't know if you, if you sort of want me to walk through how, there's more to it than that for sure. Um, Please do that. The, do that. The, I, mean, I kind of, I think it's sort of useful to start by just sort of clarifying how we measure inflation in the US. And I think we all have a vague sense that um, higher inflation means that prices are going up, but where does that information about prices come from and how is it measured? I think is useful to know just to get some insights about why some groups are more affected than others when okay. inflation happens. I'm not gonna go through some you know, long nerdy 
uh, view of this, but just to be really please, clear, please, please. Here, you're going to bring back nightmares if you begin. No, 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 no. I just want to be and the regression. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. I just, I just want to be clear that this is a you know we measure inflation through something called the Consumer Price Index, which is put through the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. And what they're essentially doing is they are tracking the prices of a large bundle of goods that are typically purchased by households. And that bundle includes prices for food, prices for shelter, prices for energy, and numerous other commodities. Um, over the last 12 months, that index has increased by 6.5%, meaning that overall prices have gone up by 6.5%. And as you clearly know, inflation was even higher than that over the last summer. So why does that affect different demographic groups differently? Well, it's partly because different demographic groups have different spending patterns, right? So low-income households spend a much higher fraction of their budget on necessities like food and shelter relative to more affluent families who uh, spend a higher fraction on what I'll call luxury goods, non-necessities. So when prices rise, more affluent families uh, effectively have more of a buffer and they can cut back on spending on those non-necessities so that they can cover the essentials that they need. That's not going to be as available to low-income families because they aren't they aren't spending on the luxury goods. They have nothing to cut back on, really. Um, and then similarly, higher-income families are more likely to have savings, so they can draw on those savings in order to make ends meet. So that's one reason that low-income families are going to be more affected by inflation. Um, but a second reason is that, um, which is particularly relevant in the past year, is that price increases that go into this consumer price index are not uniform across all goods. So during the current inflationary period, which has been characterized by particularly high increases in food and energy, um, low-income families who spend a higher fraction of their budget on things like food and gas to get to work and things like that are going to be more affected by those price increases on those particular items than other goods. So like, just to give you a counterexample, if the if inflation was being driven by increases in the price of yachts, right, that would not really affect low income families in the same way that it would affect middle middle class families or higher income families, because low income families aren't buying yachts, right? So it does matter a lot that this particular period of inflation is really characterized by particular kinds of price increases. So this is curious. I mean, I, I know it's not a typically economic question, but it may be an economic question. So how come the current environment is really impacting food for higher prices? You know, that's super complicated. <laughs> There's never an easy answer to those questions. I think the current people believe that the current inflationary period is driven by a number of different factors, some of which were related to the were related to the pandemic. And that included the production of food during the pandemic, some of which is related to the Ukraine and the um, which provides a lot of wheat. Right. So a lot of some some food products are coming from from the Ukraine. 
I think, um, why did it affect, why did the pandemic affect food prices so much? Part of that was due to um, supply side issues. Um, the ability to produce anything when people are sick and not able to go to work is um, extreme. Um, and then demand also sort of changed as a result of the pandemic as well. So, Professor, we're, we're uh, speaking with Professor Marion Page, who is a professor of economics, the director of Center for Poverty Research at the University of California in, in Davis. And you have just spoken to a level that I at least have some familiarity with. I'm not saying understanding, but what I think I let me just translate in my world. Did you just kind of talk about cost? being related to supply and demand? I did. <laughs> Funny that an economist would do that, right? Yeah. So uh, so I, I guess because of a lot of reasons, whether in Ukraine or whatever, people still needed to eat, but the supply was shorter and therefore the price went up? Yeah, basically. Okay. Okay. All right. Maybe, maybe I might pass your course. If I- <laughs> <laughs> I got that right. So <clears throat> let's go on a little bit further. I mean, um, I think your explanation of of why it impacts the poor um, more than than others is very understandable, very clear. Um, so what you're looking, but obviously as a society, we um, <clears throat> you know we we again as a society we want to make sure that people have enough. I mean, now I'm not getting political and whether will you blame people, or you, how you do it. But is there a way from a policy point of view when this happens that we can, you know, kind of maybe mitigate some of the negative effects of inflation on those who are lower income, don't have enough? Uh, for sure. There's things that we can do. And I think a number of economists are advocating for those things. I think it's important to think about sort of short-term solutions versus long-term solutions. And in the case that we're talking about right now, I think we're mostly talking about short-term solutions. So in my opinion, targeted assistance is really the way to go. Um, People like me do not really need help during a period of high inflation. Um, So what are examples of targeted assistance? Um, So for decades, the federal government has offered um, energy assistance to low-income households that are struggling with fuel costs um, through something called the Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program. Um, Similarly, there are programs like the Supplemental uh, Nutrition Assistance Program, we usually call it SNAP, um, and the WIC program, which both provide food assistance and help assure food security. uh, so that when prices increase, access to those programs uh, can be helpful. Uh, an obvious solution to me in times when food prices are going up a lot is to increase the generosity of those programs for a short period of time in order to help make ends meet or and or to increase eligibility cutoffs. So going to, uh, you know, the po- when we define poverty, or we define eligibility, it's at quite low levels, right? So it's not just having an income exactly below the poverty threshold, right? Anyone in this area can benefit 
um, can benefit from something like that. So increasing the, the fraction of people who are eligible can also be really useful. Um, in my home state of California, uh, the governor has provided one-time cash rebates to families earning less than $150,000 just to help them get by, I think mostly motivated by the change in fuel prices um, during the summer. That's not perfect um, because it operates through the tax system, which means that it's harder for the lowest income families to navigate relief, um, but it does have the benefit of being efficient and easy to implement and reaching a lot of families with relatively little effort. Um, I think more generally, anything that makes it easier to access any safety net program is a win. So take up of safety net programs, whether it's the ones I just mentioned or other programs in general is not close to 100%, by which I mean that even among families that qualify, there are many, many families that don't access the benefits that they are entitled to. Um, so one reason for that is that in the US, we run this very disjointed set of safety net programs, and there's a significant administrative burden associated with accessing them. There's also not a lot of outreach in terms of providing information to individuals. So we saw the cost of that during the pandemic, when it was really difficult to efficiently reach families that were in extreme need. But it's really a continual pro problem, even in good times, um, because there's always families in need. It's just that when that number of families increases, we become more aware of um, kind of the problems with our system. We're speaking with uh, Professor Marion Page, a professor of economics at University of California in Davis. Let me uh, switch to another topic, which you have a fair amount of expertise in. You talk about labor economics. And, you know, one of the broad topics that <clears throat> has been part of our policy debates in the country is obviously jobs and the global economy and jobs going overseas, buying American jobs, staying at home, all of those things are oftentimes, uh, you know, they, they make nice slogans in campaigns. But I, but I'd like to get you know, a little bit more serious in terms of your perspective. And let me just throw out a hypothesis and you kind of respond to it. Uh, when we talk about jobs at home, um, and we look at the cost of labor in the United States and the cost of labor in other countries. So I'm just going to phrase it this way. Can the American workforce truly be competitive? <laughs> that is a super interesting question. Um, the answer is yes. I think the answer is what is it we're producing? Competitive mm -hmm. in what? And I think moreover, the question is how do we, it is, if the goal is to maximize profits and that is the only goal, then companies are always gonna have a um, incentive to search out the lowest, the, the, the place to produce goods at the lowest possible wages. So, that as we automate more, that 
I'm not sure I'm really answering your question, but as we we automate more, it is easier and easier to send those jobs abroad where the wages are very low. I do think as a society, we need to think carefully about what that implies about our priorities. I don't think in a country like the U.S. where we value individualism and and competitiveness, um, we are ever going to want to take the desire to allow individuals to maximize their profits away. But I do think we need to think carefully about, as a society, about what we can do. Like, how do we find that balance between being competitive and providing living wages to um, individuals? There are a lot of studies on the minimum wage. There's a lot of dispute among economists about what the um, costs and benefits of raising the minimum wage would be, where there are a large number of smart economists who find evidence on both sides of this question that raising minimum wages would produce a significant decline in the demand for low-skilled workers, which would be, you know, which could be bad for them in the end. And there's a whole other set of economists who have also written very good studies suggesting that the employment costs would be relatively small. So I don't think this, it's just not that simple. It is not just the case that, well, if we pay living wages to people, we will not be competitive in the world anymore. We are a society that one of our places of where we are extremely competitive and will probably continue to be competitive for a long time is things like research and development. We lead the world in that. Those are not generally, that is not generally an area where um, we're going to be, you know, exporting our jobs to other countries. So part of it is about, I'm kind of going on a meander now, but part of it is about what do we mean? That's a very broad sort of statement. Are we competitive? Well, competitive in what and competitive how? And along with a question about what does it mean to be competitive? And I bet you, Professor, that those economists that come on both sides or or different sides of the minimum wage question, I'll bet you they both use statistics. Yes, and I was trying to be careful there in saying that they are both using statistics and it's not that one set of studies is terrible and the other set of studies is good. I mean, this is just something we've been grappling with for a very long time. So even with good statistics, I mean, we're always learning, right? Right. And the minimum wage is not the only way to boost wages either. But, um, you know, the earned income tax credit has been enormously successful in terms of raising people out of poverty and promoting work. So one solution is to raise wages through government subsidies instead of taxing employers. Um, You know, there are many, it's uh, like I could do a whole episode on this, right? (laughs) There's, it's just not, you know, uh, there's many ways of trying to achieve competitiveness and they're not necessarily, um, uh, it's not necessarily the case that we have to keep wages low in order to be um, uh, a leader in terms of the economy. Professor Page, you've been so, so generous with your time, and I learned a whole lot. I probably have to go review my 101 economics books to see, to look up a few of the things, but I just found it a delightful conversation, and I learned a lot with it, and I'm sure 
our listeners are a lot smarter because you spent these few minutes with us. So thank you so much for, for taking the time to be with us on Just Love. Sure. Happy to do it. Great. Professor Marianne Page, Professor of Economics, Director of the Center for Poverty Research at the University of California in Davis. Tom, I think it's time for us to take a break before we come back. Just love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. He gives us all his love. He gives us all. Welcome back to Just Love. This is our weekly conversation about the church in the world. We look at what's going on from the perspective of our Catholic social teaching. We look at it through the perspective of human dignity. We look at it through the perspective of how do things more impact the poor than other people. We look at them from the rights of workers. We look at them from the perspective of global solidarity. And we look at it from the perspective of how the family and society are supportive of individual rights. And so we talk about what's going on in the world from that 
perspective. And we talk with different people and we hope that our listeners, we hope that you uh, appreciate a little bit the breadth of what we have to bring our values to bear on because Jesus came into the world to kind of save all of humankind and the whole human person. So anything that impacts the human person is something that is important to the followers of Christ. It's important to us as Catholics. And we hope it is important to all of us as human beings made in the image and likeness of God. So um, I'm delighted that Brad Hill will join us at our next guest, because I am really fascinated by uh, what he and his people have put together. So I'm, we're now joined by Brad Hill, who is with the He Gets Us movement. And um, Brad, thank you so much for joining us. Monsignor Kevin, great to see you. And I like your hat. Well, I put it on because and I, 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 I already paid. I did pay somebody a compliment. That was my my you made him a compliment. Okay, made him a compliment. That's I, good. I, I've I, got. I uh, I forgave someone for mine. So okay, that's okay. Good. <laughs> I hope you don't have to forgive me after this interview. But <laughs> uh, but thank you so much. Um, so um, I'm not going to do much of a lead-in because you can do it better than I. I'll just say that I was watching a football game a few weeks ago. And I'm watching this, and I have to tell you, Brad, I got jealous. Because after I saw it, this little, I'm going to call it this, ad on uh, television during the football game, I said, why didn't I think of that for my sermon last Sunday? That is really good stuff. So, Brad, I was jealous of the work, what you guys have been doing. So tell us a little bit about it. I didn't do much of a lead-in, so tell us about He Gets Us, what that is. Yes, well, He Gets Us is um, is a campaign. Uh, it's a media campaign, and I love that you started using the word movement because we're seeing a lot of signs where it it's becoming something broader than just an ad campaign. But many folks like you are first encountering this through seeing one of our media messages on TV, on sporting events, uh, billboards. We were in Times Square. We've had a lot of different opportunities to get this message out. And the goal of the whole thing is quite simply to help our our country and our culture reintroduce themselves to what we would call this radical, confounding love of Jesus. And so we're doing that through these media messages. And then second, second, we also hope that by doing this, we can inspire or call up all of us that count ourselves as Jesus followers you know, our hope is that we can call us up to better reflect this radical confounding love of Jesus to the people we interact with. So it's both kind of a, you know, a little bit of a media messaging, you know, let's, let's invite people to take a closer look. And then let's also call all of us to really reflect that same love of Jesus that they see in those ads. So let me, let me lift the hood a little bit. Um, You know, you know, this guy, Jesus, he's been around for a while. So what kind of got you guys um, to say, hey, we got to do something more about this? Give us a little bit of the 
kind of inside a story about how the campaign kind of was uh, brainstormed and got off the ground. Right. So the origin story, you know, takes us back about a year and a half or so. And this was really began as just a group of committed Jesus followers, by the way, representing multiple church uh, denominational affiliations. And we'll get into this later, but we have we have folks in the Catholic community. We have Protestants, as you might imagine, everybody in between. So this isn't any out of any one church. But essentially, the conversation was looking around at our culture and what we see changing in our communities. And it led to this simple, profound question. And the question is, how did the world's greatest love story become known as a hate group? And so we took that, you know, fairly provocative statement, um, which a lot of our, you know, our, our friends within churches can can probably resonate with in this day and age. But we we took that question and actually didn't start with ads. We started with research. So we we went around for nearly a year, uh, talked to about 8,000 folks across the country and said, hey, what do you think about the church? What do you think about Christians? And what do you think about Jesus? And uh, I don't know that this will be shocking to you, but what we heard quite a bit, these are people primarily who would not say that they're Jesus followers that we were speaking to. They said, ah, the church, not so sure. You know, it, I, I've been hurt by the church, or I know someone who's been hurt by the church, or I just, it's just not that relevant for me. Christians, I know some good Christians. I know some faithful, but I also know people that say one thing, do another. Um, Sometimes Christians act like I have to be in some kind of club if I can get close to Jesus. We hear we heard things like that. But then when we get to that part about what do you think about Jesus, then they light up. This is this is the most encouraging thing. Um, we have, based on our research, we would say that there's well over half the American adult public has a neutral to positive or very positive view of Jesus, even where they may initially not want to get too close to the church or to Christians. So the the punchline for us is if we can make Jesus our headline, we feel like we have a shot at really, you know, inviting conversation with folks who aren't just wandering back into our churches or or ministries. So that's how we got started. Excuse me. Um, We're speaking with Brad Hill, who is spokesperson for the He Gets Us movement. And to give you a little preview, the He is Jesus. That's who it is who gets us. That sounds really interesting. So let me share with you, Brad, a little bit of, um, to pick up on what you said. Obviously, in our Catholic Church, we've had some pretty horrendous scandals and, and, and situations that have been all over the media for the past couple of decades. And those are just tragic. And I think we can never stop asking for forgiveness for them. And so periodically, but I remember one time in the past year or so, and I don't remember what the gospel text was, but one of the things that my point was, please, if you want to hate the church, okay, but don't hate Jesus. Give up on the church if you have to, but don't give up on God. Don't give up on Jesus. And, you know, it, 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 as somebody who, quote unquote, as a clergy person, um, I got to examine my own life and my own 
to say, you know, am I helping people to get closer to you or am I an obstacle? And what I have been so impressed by, you know, the the things I've seen from me gets us is <clears throat> there's not much that gets in the way of the message. It's about Jesus. That's right. And that's you, you, you hit the nail on the head in terms of the strategy. And by the way, that's not to say that we take anything away from our churches. Um, although everything you shared is, is also valid. There is a lot of, um, just fallenness, right? In, in the church, we're all on journeys. So we, we respect and we, we want to give people space to, to explore Jesus um, when when maybe they have those concerns or those traumas or whatever the barriers could be. Um, so we when you hear us talk about he gets us, you're going to hear over and over again that we're looking to help them reintroduce themselves to Jesus, explore more about him at their own pace. Um, one of the things we heard, I, I referenced it earlier, is, you know, sometimes it feels like Christians um, are the obstacle or that I have to be in some club or check some box before I can get close to Jesus. And and when we look at scripture, we look at Jesus himself. That's not at all how Jesus behaved. That's not how he acted. In fact, Jesus put himself oftentimes in places where people from the church would never think to go. Um, and he did that on purpose so that he could be in the pathway of those folks who needed to know his radical love. So we're in a very small way. We're trying to do that with the tools of the day, namely media, technology, and um, and these 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 this campaign that we now have available to us. So I assume that since you did a lot of research, um, let me just tell you as kind of a the audience that has seen a number of these and saw enough of them to want to kind of get my own hat. Um, and I did. Um, <clears throat> but it, it seems to me that there is a particular um, thrust in the part of the message of Jesus that deals with some of his interaction with people and, and issues of vulnerability and some social issues. Have I gotten that right or am I just missing the other stuff? Yes. Well, I would tell you just, you know, pulling the curtain back a little bit and you would, you would see more of this if you, if you're on the website and for example, there's a several pages about the campaign about, right. about us, um, the, the leadership and everyone involved and he gets us, let me just first plainly state fully believes in a Jesus who was fully man and fully God. Right. Um, so I want to, I just want to state that at the outset and at the same time, Part of the strategy, again, deriving from the research, from what folks told us, um, there's a there, there's too 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 seldom an understanding that Jesus really relates to my experience. Whatever I'm going through today, that could be loneliness, could be anxiety, it could be that I feel like I'm part of a group of people who's marginalized in society. Uh, too seldom people understand that, you know, Jesus actually understands he 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 said and taught things that are relevant to you and uh in many ways your experience is a shared experience with him so he gets us is to your, to your point we are we are focusing primarily on that human side of Jesus what he said what he lived through 
how he responded. Uh, because one of the things we heard from folks who are not ready to come to church, they would still say, you know, if the world lived the way Jesus taught, we'd all be better off. What could we learn from a man like that 2,000 years later? So we're we're sort of hanging on that hook to begin with. And then what we hope is as people gradually make their way through a journey and they can explore Jesus on their own terms, it's going to necessarily invite them to explore fully who he was. And the campaign is designed to then essentially hand that person over to our, our churches, our ministries, who can then fully explore the other side of Jesus, right? Which is that, yes, he's fully man, but also there's a there's a divinity side to this that you need to know about. But the so campaign just, is going to focus on the, the humanity. So Brad, you just mentioned something and use a little bit of jogany advertising thing. Um, there wasn't a strong call to action in the messages. But is there a call to action? Well, I would say that's a wonderful question. The call to action, quite simply, is to explore. Okay. And and we that's that's um different and new for a lot of right, even our, our friends within the church. Right. Um, you know, much like we see across the marketplace and secular society, we're asked to buy things and sign up for things and enroll in things and subscribe all day long. Yeah. And we're simply saying, hey, we respect you. We respect the the unique journey you're on. And we would just simply invite you to explore how this person, Jesus, may relate to what it is that you're going through. You know, but you know, Brad, I mean, it may not it may not be all that common, but there's a deep skip, scriptural basis with it when Philip gets involved and and he wants to know more. And the invitation is come and see. Come and see, not be baptized, not believe, just come and see. And, you know, if you want to take a little liberty with with the Greek, maybe it is come and explore. That's right. And I would tell you even, um, you know, within the, the campaign itself, and you mentioned at the outset, football games and other places, um, there are a number of places still in our country today where if you're advertising anything religious, uh, there are certain places where that's not welcome. Yeah. And yet the He Gets His campaign has has managed, um, and we certainly believe God's hand is on this, to um, get doors open that were not normally open. And I would tell you one of the one of the reasons for that is what you just said. It's that, you know, when we talk to advertising executives or people who make these decisions, they say, we like this campaign because you're not preaching, you're not advertising any one church. It doesn't come across as self-serving, which is exactly right. We're we're really trying to let the individual explore on their own terms. So, Brad, I got to ask this question, and please feel free to say that you can't answer it. But you going to make the Super Bowl? Yes, we are. Thank you for asking. We're very excited. I can tell all of your audience that. To our knowledge, this is going to be, if not the first, certainly the biggest time that Jesus has been visible in the Super Bowl. I don't know about you. I watch as much for the commercials as I do for the game. So right after the beer guys and the cell phone guys and the insurance guys, we're going to have not one, but actually two ads run this year um, on He Gets Us. 
well, that is that is great. Brad, thank you so much. If groups wanted to try to incorporate that message into what they're doing, is there a way to do that? Yes. Um, and in fact, it's tied to the Super Bowl. So we've we've created a very easy way. That's the number one question we get is how can I get involved? Okay. And that's true for ministries, for churches, as much as just individuals. So we'd invite everybody to simply send a text. That's the easiest way to get involved. Uh, the number is 70193. Okay. So if you send a text to 70193 and just simply use the word Super Bowl, um, that will kind of bring you into the inside track, if you will. We'll give you some information. We'll give you some links you can check out. We won't sell you anything. We won't ask you to do anything different. We might ask you to pray. Okay. Uh, but we'd love everybody to do that. And um, even beyond the Super Bowl, we, we're we seeing this really build into a, a large community and a movement, as you said. Do you permit groups to kind of put your links on their sites if so that they can guide their people to them? We Yes, we've had quite a bit of that. Yeah. And uh, and even back to your starting comment, it's not too late if you wanted to involve some of this into a sermon. We've had a lot of our churches uh, download the videos and Love. use them or the messages. We welcome that. Great. Brad Hill, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to the Super Bowl, spokesperson for the Gets Us movement. Thanks for being with us. Thank you all. Appreciate it. we got to take a break. Just love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. We do that. The world will be more just and more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.
Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Hey, thank you so much for joining us on Just Love this weekend. Let's just do this. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. Let's make the world more just. Let's make it more compassionate by what each of us does individually to our neighbor, praying to God, reflecting our own lives. Thanks for being with us. Join us again next week on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. You're listening to the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.